I grew up in a small town, and uh, when I was a young boy, we also grew up uh, on a small country club, and I will, I will, that's a little overwhelming, is it? Is that a little overwhelming loud? Okay. Um, I'll emphasize country uh, in the club, and uh, my parents were members there. And so uh, think a small town, which is where I grew up, similar to Danville, and think a, a golf course outside of the community, maybe like Old Bridge that's out on 34, about that level. As a matter of fact, when I walk in Old Bridge uh, Pro Shop, I feel like I'm, this is what my home uh, felt like uh, out there. And so um, on weekends and Wednesdays, of all places, uh, but they play throughout, but week- weekends were big, and Wednesdays, our hometown, my hometown, growing up, shut down at noon on Wednesdays. Do towns do that up here? Do they do that? But anyway, uh, we, uh, they had groups of men that gathered to play golf together, and uh, there were different kinds of groups. There was the gambling group who played golf because they wanted to gamble, and it was big high stakes and that kind of stuff, and there were multiple types of groups, but there was this one group called the big group that I always wanted to be a part of, and it was men who wanted to play golf and would just uh, loved golf and might wager a little bit on the side. Uh, just like you and I maybe say, hey, I'll bet you a dinner that you can't beat me today at Cornhole. Something like that, okay? And um, so it was a large group, probably. Uh, my dad always played in it. It's probably 30, 40, 50 men that gathered and would play and divide up teams and they'd play the game. Well, as a young boy, um, as my dad, dad would go, he'd take me out there. They would begin to play the game. They'd divide up teams and go play. And as a young boy, I would get behind my dad's group and play by myself uh, behind him. And um, as you can imagine, as an 11, 12, 13-year-old, um, uh, my dad would, I could always wonder if he was watching each shot I hit and could feel him watching me. And he could see where I'd hit it or how maybe even keeping my score. But... Um, What I really wanted to do was not shoot a great score, which would have been great, but, but my goal is I wanted to play with the big group. Like the whole time I thought, man, I should be up there with that. Dad, I can beat some of those guys. I'm t- I can beat some of those guys you're playing with. And uh, that was kind of my greatest goal. Um, and so I would work on my game some or whatever. And, and, but let me just tell you this. If, if all I could do uh, was just practice my swing and hit more shots and work and practice and just kind of get down to the mechanics of golf, I would have never stayed with golf. To be honest, the goal of one day being to play and be a part of this big group with more people and more purpose and grandeur to it is what made me stick to the game. Something bigger than, uh, than just the mechanics of the game. So, I'll draw on that a little bit here today. But we're sticking with Jonah. You may have noticed we're sticking with Jonah, and we're not starting uh, first, uh, Second Timothy like we said we would. And uh, the reason for that is we decided, kind of pivoted this week to decide that we would like, with all the studies that are going on in life groups discussing Timothy, Second Timothy, that we would rather have the sermons be on the backside of the studies instead of on the front side so that you will study the Scriptures and not just uh, walk away and say, well, here's what the preacher said and, and only read the Bible that way, that you will hopefully, when you come to church on Sundays, that it will deepen, if you're a part of those studies, it will deepen maybe what you've already been looking at uh, in the Word. So that's the reason. We just finished Jonah, and I had a number of sermons I wanted to say some, uh, with Jonah, so I'll pick another one, because Jonah is a fabulous book, and I've enjoyed teaching from it. And what we're looking at today, we're looking at Matthew. You notice we weren't in the book of Jonah, but Jonah, if you're visiting with it, is the guy who was eaten by a well, and God called him to go tell, tell people to repent in a city that was, he didn't want to go to, and he was swallowed up in a well. You know that famous story 
Uh, that's the story. But what we have this morning is Jesus, uh, Jesus's kind of view of Jonah. We get the opportunity to see how did Jesus take the story of Jonah and how did he use it in his context? That's a pretty interesting thought. We get to see Jesus in his ministry some seven, eight hundred years later, take the story of Jonah and process it and apply it to his life. I think that's an interesting perspective. And, um, and one of the things, by the way, it tells us is that it, Jonah was a historical person, and it really did happen. Even the way Jesus speaks of it, the Ninevites and the story, that thing happened. It was supernatural. There were multiple miracles. We believe in a transcendent God. And I don't understand it how, but a man was followed by a fish and was spit out. So that's what it teaches us. One thing for sure we can know it. But we'll see Jesus' perspective, and he's dealing in his context here. And how did he interpret Noah? I mean, not Noah, Jonah. And, um, and how did he use it? So we'll look at two things from our outline before we come to the Lord's table together. The first is just kind of the local issues that he addressed in his view of Jonah. And then some of the long-term solutions that he brought to bear. Or maybe a better way to say it is a long-term perspective. So uh, maybe another way, if you want to take notes, is the small story that was right at his feet and the grand story that he reminds him of. All right? So let's pray. Father, would you um, help us this morning and prepare our hearts um, to come to your table, to fellowship today, to commune with you and each other. But as you do that, would you also speak to our minds and let us be sharpened? Um, let us be transformed. We confess that our minds have been tutored by the world all week and by our own desires. Would you reach our hearts and soften our hearts? And uh, many of us may come in today a little jaded, a dull, tired, weary, suspicious of you. I pray you would get to our hearts. And also, God, would you speak to our hands and give us, um, give us applications for our life, not, not things that add and make us feel like, oh no, another thing to do, but something about us that we would see you today that would make us long to change and take steps towards that uh, in freedom, um, the kind of freedom that comes when people are before your throne that we've talked about, the kind of freedom that comes from you being our only hope as we confess together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we'll go to our passage here in Matthew, and we'll just be there the whole time. Uh, we'll be jumping around. And uh, let's first look at kind of the local issues that he's, that he's dealing with. All right, let me just uh, tell you that uh, the context of Jesus' ministry here is that he's um, probably around the Sea of Galilee uh, between year one and two. And... Um, uh, the, uh, right after this is one of the large, in chapter 13, is one of the large sermons that he gives where he uses all the parables. The parabolic um, discourse is what some call it, where the next chapter he teaches and does um, in the cities of his disciples lots of uh, teaching on parables. But um, in this particular um, local issue, you'll notice in verse 38 that some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
So notice who comes to him. It's the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you've been here for us, who are the scribes and Pharisees? Uh, they were, the, um, uh, they were the, 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 the spiritual leaders, the clergy of the day. And they hated Jesus. This whole chapter 12, up until this, I'll tell you some of it, they just don't like what Jesus is. They thought of behavior first, nothing of the heart. Jesus would say to them, like you say things from your mouth about me, but your heart is far from me. They would have put weight upon the law of who God is, and they were behavior-focused, if you will. And their understanding of Jesus is not good. And they were the ones who were persecuting him and hated him, okay? And so, um, basically, in one sense, the scribes and the Pharisees are Jonah. That's what Jonah was. He was a clergy. He was a prophet. They are Jonah. And you remember, Jonah didn't want to go talk to the, uh, to the Ninevites when, when, when God asked him to do that. So, let me just... Um, let me give you the context here. Uh, in verses 1 through 8, Jesus plucks some grain from, uh, in our chapter, plucks some grain from the fields when he's walking with his disciples, and he feeds them. And the Pharisees are furious that, that they're doing something on the Sabbath. Sabbath laws are a big deal to him. Next, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus heals a withered hand of a, and someone in the synagogue. It's like, and they're like, hey, don't you heal anybody on this day. It's sacred. And she's like, if a sheep falls in a hole, what, wouldn't you fix him? Wouldn't you rescue him? Uh, the Pharisees are just angry. They're conspiring to come after him. Uh, Jesus withdraws, and because the Pharisees are conspiring against him, in verses 15 through 21, and he actually gets away from them, and he heals tons of people, outcasts. Pharisees did not want anything to do with all the people that Jesus was ministering to and spending time with. And, um, and Jesus begins to, yeah, later, uh, in ver right before this, he hears a blind and mute, demon-possessed man brought to Jesus, and he heals him. So Jesus is doing something that the Pharisees hate. Just like Jonah, when God told him to do something he didn't want to do, and he didn't like it. Notice that their word that they used to address Jesus is teacher. They don't call him Lord, Yahweh, which Jonah did. But they have the same vibe. They have the, kind of the same core issue. And this is their core issue, just like Jonah's. They had a definition who they thought God was and is, and they also had an opinion on what they thought he ought to be doing and not doing. And when he didn't do that or meet that, didn't meet their definition or their box, and he wasn't doing what they were doing, they become furious. You remember Jonah pitched a fit and was angry and said things to God that like made you a little nervous when we read about it. He was angry about what God was calling him to do. They were just like, they didn't want God's love and mercy to flow past them. They didn't like the idea that Jesus was among the unclean and the sinners and the non-Jews who were outside their camp. And they believed that they were more righteous than them and we're different from them because we obey your law and we do. We, we have the Torah and we, we add to it, but we are keeping it. And so let me just pause there and say um, one of the things Jesus is doing is saying, Pharisees, you're just like Jonah. Have you not read it? You need to look back and see that. And then can I then just say that I believe, based upon our own denomination, which I've just come from our Presbyterian denomination meetings, uh, based upon our own denomination and the demographics of who we are and knowing our church, our struggles as a church, whenever God calls us to reach a city like he's doing and has always called us to do, our struggles will always be like Jonah's. That's our struggle. We're going to have those tendencies. 
We're not going to be like the younger brother, oftentimes, who is wild and runs to a far-off land. We're going to be right next to the church. Our struggle is to think and process the world the way Jonah is, does. Now, you can go back and hear some of the other sermons that we processed around Jonah. I'm just reminding you here, even locally, uh, in the immediate, the way Jesus looked at Jonah is he wanted them to learn the same things the Pharisees learned what we've been learning as we study from Jonah. That Jonah, <laughs> there are no good people and bad people, just bad people like you and the people out there who need my grace. And Jonah, by the way, my love is for you and I'm gracious to you, even how you're pitching fits and doing that, but my love is also for the nations as it goes forth. And yet us, our tendency is like that. We value correctness over being right. Uh, we value correctness and theological correctness and doing things the right way more oftentimes than we value people. We'll worry about the world contaminating us more than we'll move out into the mess. We kind of like things to be orderly and in order. Our idols of safety and fortification, just like Jonah's was in the Pharisees, they liked keeping it within the Jews. Our, our idols of safety and fortifying our lives and protecting, uh, we do that and we mask it with the idea of wisdom. That's what our tendency is instead of moving out into the mess of the world. Compassion usually has its limits depending on how messy things get. That's one of our struggles. We think laziness is a sin, but not workaholics. Not workaholics, right? Whatever they, how you say that. We look at a world and, and think um, our struggles are different. We think abandonment of family and responsibilities is terrible. But nothing's wrong with worshiping the family and making every decision in your life, and every stage in life with family at the forefront or at the center, and we crushing our families by our unrealistic expectations of spouses and children. Which one's worse? Abandonment or that? That's our tendency. That would have been the tendency of the Pharisees. High, high expectations. High achievers. And struggling with Jesus taking his love and moving it through us out into the mess among those who were demon-possessed. Had the evil one all over them. Now, when we looked at the Jonah story, one of the things we held up was how unbelievably compassionate God was to Jonah. Did you, I hope you felt that. That Jonah was in process, and he was a knucklehead, and even in the end, God just kept kind of coming after him. It's okay to be in process. God is just that compassionate, and we need it. And you need it, and I need it more than we're willing to admit. Most of the time we think it's those that are in a mess out there, the ones who need the compassion, but we need it too. And, um, but what's very interesting, he was very compassionate, this doesn't feel real gracious, this passage, does it? I mean, look at the language that he uses. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a signs, but no one given to it will accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. By the way, he had given lots of signs up until these verses. He was healing people left and right. He had healed them in front of those with the signs, say, I'm God, I'm God. And then they come and ask for one. And he said, I'm not giving you one. Jonah's sufficient for you. Now, we can work through all of that. What I want you to walk away with this morning is just, is just this, that um, we think Jesus oftentimes is mad at the Ninevites who live in such, we would conclude, heinous and 
ab- non-ungodly ways. Uh, but his wrath will be poured out towards the righteous, the self-righteous, just as much. And why was he gracious to Jonah, who was self-righteous and a little stern here? I don't know, but Romans 9 tells me God says, I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I'll, have, I'll pour my wrath out upon whom I will pour my wrath. He, I mean, it ought to make us buckle and say, oh, God, just have mercy on me. Please let me be the one of mercy. You and I should look at Jonah and say, God, let, would you be as gracious to me as you were to Jonah? That you'd be that patient and be thankful that and ask God to do it. So he deals with the local issues that way. He, he, is, he is a little stern. But in the end, isn't it gracious to show you what your problem is and to actually bring truth to you? Now, his plea isn't over. Uh, but at this point, it feels a little heavy. So that's the local issues and how he applied it. Look to Jonah. Long for that for you. He even says, the Ninevites, they repented, and Jonah, they looked at Jonah. They could have, he, basically what Jesus is saying, they looked at Jonah and said, wow, you were gracious to Jonah. Will you be gracious to us too? And we should now look at Jesus and say, wow, Jesus. Would you be gracious to us? We're the Ninevites to you. Well, so then second, so the long-term view. And here's the point. Jesus does locally kind of address what's going on. But then then he transitions to the idea of just that he takes the long-view approach to help these men, to help these Pharisees, and to help address where they are in their life today. And uh, there's just a bigger and more beautiful story than the story that you have shrunk your life down to to think about only. And what a gracious thing to do, to God to come to us and say, there is a story going on, it's big, it's long, and you're a part of it. And it's the most glorious story of all of history. It's what every Disney movie that wants a, a knight in shining armor to come and, and, and cherish and see and rescue. It's what our hearts long for. Why we, what we point to, there's a story, and you can or are a part of that story. It's the most beautiful story. It's really big. It's just big, big and beautiful. And so um, let me just read a passage to you. How is it bigger? I don't have this on the slide. But Jesus explains this. What, he, what actually Jesus does here to the Pharisees in this moment, he actually explains in his ascension. You may remember the famous walk with Emmaus walk where Jesus kind of in some bodily form appears by these two guys who after the resurrection he's walking with them and they don't know who Jesus is and then finally he reveals who he is to them the ascended Jesus in resurrection form and so he's walking with them and he actually goes into their house and sits down with them and to explain with them uh, what he was and listen to this what Jesus said and he said to them Luke 24 25 oh foolish ones and slow of heart they couldn't kind of get it to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What he did, what Jesus did in that moment, Mr. Maus, they couldn't figure out, what was this Jesus? He's gone. Oh, no, we're scared. He's dead. Is he? Where is he? And Jesus says, listen, guys, the whole thing has been about me from the beginning. There's a really, really, really big story here from the beginning. And the prophets In the Old Testament, they point to a big story. And guess what? 
You and I are just, whether you know it or not, just like I was as a little 11-year-old playing behind my dad. We long to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We wish that we could get outside of just deciding whether to grip the ball and aim this way and, and flex this way and hit it. We, if that's all it is, but no, there's a big group, if you will. But Jesus is saying is the story this bigger. And how does he do it in this, in this particular way? And notice uh, that what it said about the two men from, on the Emmaus walk. It said, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It says that their hearts, their eyes were opened and that their hearts burned with what they learned. They burned with it. Meaning what they thought, this figuring out the details, it would be like, it would be like me when playing that golf, is that what I was burning for was never going to be found by me fixing that. What I was longing for was something bigger. And one day, hey, by the way, I do play in the big group now. Every time I go home, <laughs> and I still feel like a little boy, even though I'm 50. In my head, I'm like, I'm still the little guy who gets to play with the big people. Because we're all children, by the way, who need the big father to love us and accept us in. And just in this chapter, this context in Matthew 12, in verses 1 through 8, remember the Sabbath thing? We're about plucking the grain. You know what, what Jesus used to explain? He uses David as an example. To say, was not David when he broke into it? He uses Old Testament language. What did he do uh, in verses 15 21 when he draws away? He drew away to heal people. And you know what the passage tells us? We have the longest quote of Matthew of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. And it's the longest quote we have of that. What is it? This whole chapter is trying to show Jesus saying this, this story is bigger than you know. And as a matter of fact, when, they, when he healed the blind and mute demon, the thought that the people had was, is this the son of David? They thought of themselves as a people, a part of a story. And we lose sight of it. And listen, in Western individualistic society like ours, what we spend most of our time is trying to get God on our story. And that just makes life miserable. But when you and I begin to see that there's a long view and we are a part of a big story, now our souls begin to sing. Now we begin to be free of all the mechanics and the small things that we shrink our life down to and get overwhelmed by when we lose sight of being a part of the big story. Let me just show you how beautiful this story is not just big, but we are a part of God. It's not just big, but it's a beautiful story in this way. Notice in verse 41 and in verse 42. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Then the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with his generations and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now he's, he's talking about the future tense when Jesus comes again and he comes back. That those that will be held up, Sheba, who, was probably, who came to hear from Saul, but from Egypt, and uh, the Ninevites. They came to see Jonah, and they saw Jonah, and they came to hear of Solomon's wisdom, which was spread all over the world. But what they will find, notice the phrase that, is predict, that was repeated. Something greater than Jonah is here, and something greater than Solomon is here. 
So this story is not just a big story that you and I are a part of that goes from creation through the fall and redemption of Christ and one day we will be restored in heaven. It's an eternal story that you and I are a part of that we can get out of our small ones and be a part and, and be consistently a part of, but it's a beautiful story. What's beautiful about it? It's just better. It's far greater than Jonah. As a matter of fact, Jonah came to foreigners because he had to, but Jesus is saying, I came to you because I loved you. And Jonah just went into a whale's belly, and he didn't even die, but I died. And I was far worse, endured far worse than the belly of a whale. I endured the, father of my, the wrath of my very father on your behalf for your sins. That's way more beautiful. It's far greater. That's what you're a part of. And the wisdom of Solomon, what she sought to have knowledge and for her life to be spoken to, I know everything about you. We just confessed the, that part, and I, we just confessed together in the, in the confession in the uh, Heidelberg, that it, every hair on our head he knows. And his knowledge is without end. And his wisdom, no one can fathom. And his understanding is that, and not only is it always righteous, but he actually has the power to execute what he discerns is wise. It's a far greater, bigger, and beautiful story. This morning, just to remind you of these two through, two ideas, what to walk away with. You and I get into trouble when we lose sight of the big story. And I don't have time to unpack the whole story, but it pretty much is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But it's beautiful, far more beautiful in the Bible. And when we lose sight of that big story, we will be miserable. And when we make our own stories the bigger story, we're equally as miserable. When the Pharisees tried to make the story their story and not see that the real thing that was going on is Jesus' story, our lives are miserable. That's where we find ourselves. There was a far bigger yes for me that gave hope in golf. It wasn't about my scores and my swings, but there was something bigger that I want to be a part. And there are a lot of things that I didn't understand that were going on in that story, things that I didn't know and I know now. The first one is, is that my dad's buddies, they didn't want to play golf with an 11-year-old. That's okay. And I don't always understand the big story, but I wanted to be a part of it. They were, um, they were men that didn't want a kid around. They were, they were men that were telling my dad stuff about my life, about his life that they opened up to him about that they weren't going to say in front of me. There was a much bigger story going on, and I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't always understand it, but I knew I wanted to be a part of that story. Some of you today, really, and some of us, not you, some of us need the hope of the long view of the big story. Your story is just tough. Some of your stories are just tough and big, and the beautiful story of God gives you hope. And I pray that you might today, in your place, wherever you are, can think, there's a story I'm a part of that ends with, has great hope. And that would help you. And some of you are just upset and want the story to always be about you. There's business deals that aren't going the way you want them. There's coworkers that aren't prospering the way, or coworkers are prospering and you're not. There's a story. There's a storyline right now that you don't like, and you think God should change it. And I would just urge you to trust the big story and the God who's authoring it. He's a good writer. 
for you, small story, and how it fits into his big story. And Grace Church, we're a small church in the middle of nowhere with a college in our town that misspells the word center. And we can walk around like the Pharisees and think that we're such big stuff and know better and challenge God, or we can get over ourselves and be profoundly wooed by the idea that we're a part of the grand story of the Bible. And we bear the image of God, and it has always been God's story for his people to get out of the mess and bring grace to the city bring grace to each other, that our small stories will work out because we're a part of the big story. So, This table that we'll come to now together reminds us of the big story. Let's pray. We'll sing in response first, and then we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Father, would you... Um, Father, I am literally preaching to myself, which I do most Sundays, that I have a hard time seeing the world past my nose and all my desires and all my shortcomings and things I don't do and things I'm imperfect in and how things don't go. And at every level, I turn and process and shrink the world down. But I need your grace and mercy to help me be reminded that I'm a part of the greatest story in all of history, the only story that matters. And I pray with my brothers and sisters today, that just for this moment today, that we could take a deep breath, three deep breaths, and breathe in the reality that we are a part of a big story. And that we can say to our children, and say over and over, no matter what it's like, and as difficult it is, and who hurts you, and who doesn't, and how your grades are going, you're an image bearer. And we, as a part of God's covenant people, are a part of a story that he's authored thousands of before, the, before eternity for us, and it's according to his grace and mercy. Cheer up. We're a lot worse than we know, but we are loved and held by the one who is faithful. The better Jonah, the better Solomon is our king. Help us to sing to that. Help us to believe that. We need help. We We'll struggle to believe it as soon as we walk out the doors. So God, strengthen us today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.